0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Galatians and chapter 3. I'm going to dive straight in this week because I feel it fits in so well with what God's already been saying. Galatians and chapter 3. Just a quick background if you've not been here for the last two weeks. Basically, Paul, who was a missionary, he went around telling people about Jesus, uh, went to these places, uh, these towns saw churches planted, and then decided to write to them and encourage them because he'd moved on. Unfortunately, after he'd left these new churches, some teachers got in there that were saying things that weren't quite right. The Bible refers to them as false teachers, and uh, even questioning, was Paul really an apostle? And so he's writing this letter. This is his first letter in the New Testament, basically saying, hey, don't listen to these false teachers and I, I said that the first time I preached was just two weeks ago. The whole message of this book is Jesus plus nothing is everything. Don't add to the gospel. The gospel is enough. That in mind, I'm going to read the whole of chapter three, and then we're going to try and, and find out the thread of this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. Because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What? Then was the purpose of the law. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party but party, but God is one. I'd just like to say, I'm not going to comment on that verse again. There are 300 interpretations of verse 20. It is a very complicated verse. We will skip it and move on. Verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law has been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under supervision of the law. You are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I think we need to pray. I think we need some help with this kind of passage. Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken so clearly to us already. Lord, we do believe the Bible is your word. We believe it is relevant to today, although Paul was writing to churches 2,000 years ago. I pray that you'd speak to us, that each of us take something away, some picture, some hearing from God, not just in our head, but in our hearts, not just in our hearts, but something that we live out that makes a difference for your glory. Amen. I have a confession to make. I put together the preaching rotor in this church. And I thought, oh, it'd be great to do a series over the summer, six weeks, six chapters. I hadn't read chapter three when I gave it to myself. If I had, I wouldn't have signed up for it. (laughs) Chapter three is really Paul, who was a, a Pharisee. If you know his upbringing, he was considered one of the best in his generation. He's having this sort of dialogue with these false teachers and almost trying to sort of cleverly answer some of their questions so that you sort of think... I look at it and think, wow, I mean, this guy's got the brain the size of a planet. How could we interpret this? How could we make it relevant to us today? So being a bear with a very small brain, I've come up with five people and five words. Each person has got one picture to go with it. So you could go away and think, I understand the whole of chapter three by remembering these five people, and they've each got an object with them. So if I looked at this as a big picture, I would say the first group of people that Paul writes about are wizards. You didn't expect that in church, did you? Paul is, is basically, he's writing to these people, he's writing to the, it's written to the church, you've got to remember, this letter is written to the church, he's writing to them and he's saying that I clearly portray Jesus Christ to you. That clearly portrayed, I mean, if, if I was thinking about it now, it would be, I've taken up Every billboard along Uxbridge Road, and I've displayed Jesus Christ. It's that clear. Every bus stop would have a picture of Jesus Christ on it. You know what I'm saying? Flashing lights in Leicester Square. Paul was saying, I clearly displayed Jesus Christ to you. Jesus, not a message of how to live, but a message of Jesus dying upon a cross. This was a compelling picture. Tim Keller, he's a guy who leads a church up in Sheffield, says the gospel is an announcement of historical events before it is instruction on how to live. It is the proclamation of what has been done for us before it is a direction of what we must do. Basically, Paul was writing and saying, I gave you this very clear picture of Jesus. How to live. What Jesus had done for you. More important than how you live. If you think about the the, the picture, and we can read this through the book of Galatians that he gave, Paul didn't paint Jesus in a manger. Paul painted the picture of Jesus on the cross. That was his understanding. It, It wasn't this sort of cute little story. He was saying, Jesus died for you. Jesus endured the cross for you. That's the picture that he's painted. And they would have understood this, and it would have emotionally got a hold of them. It wasn't just some academic, oh, well, I understand this. I I feel confessions are coming on this morning, and I could get myself into some deep trouble. I personally love going to musicals in London. uh, Nicky and I went up to see The Bodyguard. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I mean, if remember the film, Kevin Costner? Anybody else actually seen the film? I'm I'm showing age You know, I'm saying Whitney Houston, this great singer, Kevin Costner, the bodyguard. Well, that film came out the year we got married. There you go. So I remember watching it, feeling quite emotional. So we decide to go and see the musical. Probably not a good idea, knowing how emotional I was about the film. Halfway through, they have an interval. Nikki turns to me. I'm crying so much (laughs) at the theatre. I'm not just a little tear running down. I'm blubbing. The last song just left me in bits on the floor. (laughs) I mean, my my wife says to me, go to the bathroom and sort yourself out. (laughs) I mean, it's just so embarrassing, isn't it? But what I felt is, I had engaged with the musical, she was just watching it. You know what I'm saying? It touched me, whether she was just, oh, it's nice singing. You see what I'm saying? The gospel like this would have been much more like me. He would have said to them, I portrayed the gospel to you, not so that you just observed it, but that it impacted you. Not just that you watched it, but so that it got right into your heart. Paul says, I clearly portrayed Jesus Christ to you. The Galatians believed it. They believed that Jesus rose again. They believed that they had to stop trying to earn their salvation and that they could just become acceptable because of what he had done. So many people, maybe you, are still trying to earn their goals now. Whether it's through a relationship, whether it's through a career, whether it's through having a nice home, whether it's your pension pot, whether it be traveling, whether it be experience. And what Paul does is he comes into this whole thing and he says, you fools, these wizards have cast a spell over you. It's a bit of almost say, who has hypnotized you? Come on, wake up. No, you, you know, you're not pretending you're a do- you, In fact, J.B. Phillips, this was a translation many years ago. He wrote, the, so he wrote the Bible. We wouldn't call it the inspired word of God. It was a, a paraphrase. It's trying to make it more applicable, J.B. Phillips. He said this, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Now, some of you may have never heard of J.B. Phillips, but you may have heard of The Message That's Eugene Peterson that's done the same kind of thing. He writes this like this. He says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? I mean, literally, the wizards, he's almost saying, have come into the church and cast a spell over them. Why on earth are you following these false teachers? They contradict the work of Jesus. They contradict the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to show you how stupid they are. John Piper, who I believe is now retired, but a preacher in the States, says Paul uses reason, this logical argument, to break the spell of stupidity. So what he's saying is the church, they've become stupid. They've lost this clear picture of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and they've come under this spell of stupidity. It's almost like the heretics were challenging Paul and saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're even a false apostle. And Paul says, you want to handle a scripture? Give me a try. I mean, it's a bit like one of us taking Zorro on in a sword fight. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, before we'd even got it out. You know, we'd have the little Z on our chest or something. That's the kind of way that Paul answers them. He comes through with this very clear presentation against these wizards. He says... Don't get caught up in the law which says do this. Get caught up in the gospel which says Christ has done it for you. Don't get caught up in the law which says it's all about your human achievement. Get caught up in the gospel which is about what Christ has achieved. Don't get caught up in the law which is all about demands. Get caught up in the gospel which is all about promises. He said, come on, we've got to let the gospel compel us, control us again. First person then, wizards. Wizards and wands, I think, there you go, that was my first. If you're, if you're a pictorial person, you can think, what's the line of the argument? It's wands and wizards. Second one, the person in this debate is Abraham. Abraham and a knife. Now, have many of you that know about the Jewish community, you think, Pete, you're not going straight there, are you? Well, that was what they were on about. You see, part of what they were saying is, actually, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, that's great, you can be, come to church, but actually we'd like to circumcise you. Yeah, Abraham's known for the knife. Now, that's not a pretty picture, so we'll move quickly back because the knife and circumcision was Genesis 17. What Paul says is, hey, you false teachers, you quickly jumped to the knife. You quickly said, hey, you've got to be circumcised to follow. You've got to do things to follow. But what I want to do is take you back because you've forgotten the history. The knife was not actually to do with Abraham and circumcision. The knife was to do with Abraham and covenant. Because in Genesis 15, God comes and makes the promise with Abraham. And in those days, what would happen if you'd made this covenant, you, it sounds a bit sick to us, but just go with it. They used to cut some of these animals in half, lay a half either side, and they would walk through. And it was almost like, this is our covenant, this is our promise, it's almost like if one of us breaks it, let it be to us, like has happened to these animals. And that you can read about that in Genesis 15. What I think is fascinating is this. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. So never walks between the animals. But God does. So what Paul is saying is the whole promise is not based upon us and what you've done. The whole promise and the knife is based upon God and what God has done. It was God that took the walk. It was God that made the promise. So it's not about what could we achieve. It's much more about we are to be those that believe. So they were saying, the false teachers, hey, use the knife, get circumcised, you've got to obey. What Paul says is now Abraham wasn't about obedience fundamentally. He was about faith. Abraham was the father of God. Faith, if you go back, it started with faith, trusting in God's promises. Are we those that believe God? Abraham believed God. Even though he had an old, barren woman, he changed his name because God said he'd become the father of nations. Even though he had a promise that he would inherit the land, he let Lot choose where to go because he trusted God to fulfill his promises even though his own son Isaac was the son of promise. He took him, it tells us in Genesis 22, to Moriah and was prepared to sacrifice him because God is more than able. And the author of Hebrews says actually he he received him back from the dead, his son, so to speak. Why? Because Abraham modeled something of faith. So what Paul is doing is he's writing and he says, actually, church, I want you to think about Abraham. Abraham was the guy of faith. Why? Because he believed in the promise of God. And what is the promise of God about? The promise of God is this. God says, I will. God says it's my plan. God says it's based upon my grace. God says it's my initiative. That was the relationship of God and Abraham. It was not what Abraham did. It was what God did. So Paul is basically saying you're saved, justified, redeemed by faith in Christ and not because of anything you do. So this second person in his sort of argument, so to speak, is Abraham. Tim Keller says this, Whatever the reason God commanded his people how to live, it cannot be in order to gain acceptance from him. The promise, which is Abraham, precedes the law. So then what he does, he goes on to person number three. So person number three in this of argument of Paul, as I understand it, is Moses. Moses was the one who was the mediator of the law. Now, I know that we're very caught on time. This I found it so, my brain's been fried going through it. Some would say the law was more detached from people because there was a mediator, whereas actually... We are blessed in Abraham, so it's much more direct from God, and so actually the Jews would have thought well, that is probably purer to go to the promise rather than the law, but I don't want to get sidetracked. If that was helpful, remember it. If not, forget it. We will move on now to Moses and the law. What did I think about this? I think it's Moses who brought the law. Moses, the guy with the rod. The thing about the law, as opposed to the promise, the law in the Old Testament was like this. You will. The promise was God saying, I will. The law was saying, you will. The law was talking about man or woman's duty, man or woman's work, man or woman's responsibility. If you could keep the law perfectly, great. But if you were to mess up one little bit of it, you failed. That was the law. We know that no one was able to keep the entire law. So in some respect, the law became almost like a magnifying glass. And it just, whoa, and you suddenly think, golly, I realize how bad I am. Some would say Paul's argument here through the law was saying it was never there to give you life. It was never there to make you acceptable to God. The law gave you a deeper awareness of the character of God and the sinfulness of people. You see, if you lean upon the law, you're leaning upon yourself. If you lean upon faith, you're accepting Jesus Christ. And so then, even this whole thing of law, he brings out two pictures. I don't know if you picked that up. It's almost like the whole world is in prison because of the law. It's almost like the law is a prisoner that keeps us trapped. We're morally helpless, unable to save us. It's almost like this God. So there's that one example of the law. The law passed down from Moses. It's like this. And then he says, actually, it's also like a god, or it's also a bit like a tutor. So that was verse 23. This is verse 24. I'm jumping around in Galatians, trying to give you the thread of it. The tutor was a slave in those days that basically was very moral but very strict. It wasn't the teacher. It was the one that used to take the pupil to and from school to learn from the teacher but actually often used to beat the child. And when the child became an adult, phew, I've got away from this tutor that was watching over me. And Paul is writing, saying, well, actually, Moses gave us the law, which was like this tutor. You know, the one that is almost like it's always very moral and always kept hitting you, took you along to this teacher, one that you couldn't wait to grow up and leave. He's almost saying, well, that was the law. It's almost like when you were in prison and you were guarded, that was the law. But actually, Jesus Christ is the one who comes and breaks you out of this prison. He's the one who sets you free. Jesus Christ is the one who takes you away from this of slave that will be strict. John Stott. John Stott was a famous English preacher that I know has died now. He said, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. Now, I think that's a huge challenge to us. Because, you know, I always find it slightly odd. My kids are here and I use them as an example and I get myself into trouble. I've always tried to say to my kids, try your best. Your best is good enough. We've got exam results coming out on Thursday. Just want to remind them of that. Obviously, I want to find out what's in the envelope, how well they've done. But Often we say, do your best. Your best is good enough. Under the law, that's not true. Your best is not good enough. But sometimes I think we can think, actually, if I really try my best, it'll be okay. Some of us even think, look, if I... Oh, man, I I have done a couple of sins this week. I'll stick a couple of 20 notes in the offering. I'm not discouraging you from doing that. If you think that saves you, go right ahead. But I need to be honest and say it doesn't. You might think, oh, golly, I've really messed up. Golly, Pete, put me down for refreshments next week. I mean, I don't want to get here early on a Sunday. I mean, I struggle for up past 10. I mean, goodness knows, up past 9. But I will do it, and then maybe God will forgive me. And actually, what it's saying, no, no the law will never, it will only ever show you how bad you are. Only ever show you. And you think, oh, Pete, that's not the encouraging word. I came for some hope. I haven't finished. Stick with me. Tim Keller, preacher in New York. I did read quite a bit on this week because I did struggle with it. If we think we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. I'll say that again. If we think we are not all that bad, then the idea of grace will never change us. And so it's almost like uh, looking at this, this theme that Paul's trying to paint a picture. Abraham came in this covenant of grace. It was by faith that you got right with God. But God almost had to bring this law, Moses, to say, you don't realize how bad you are. Because often, if we're really honest, our society might say, oh, you're not too bad. Human beings are good people. And then maybe we've watched the news this week and we think, golly, there's some total tragedy going on caused by human beings. That's the third person. fourth person that comes into this argument that he's making, I would say, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the main man, we believe that here. If ever you're asked a question at church, I was raised in a Baptist church, the answer is always Jesus. It always gets there in the end, you know what I'm saying? Verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, verse 22, verse 29, all bring in Jesus Christ. Yes, he was the one that could fulfill the law because he did live the perfect life. He was the one that could fulfill the law because he was a physical descendant or seed of Abraham. But actually what it tells us is Jesus took the curse in our place. I mean, this would have been tragic for them. In those days, you've probably heard in the Bible, it says, cursed is he who's hung on a tree. Actually what they did is they used to kill the person first. They often used to stone them. And then they would hang them up as a symbol to others. So when you had died, you were hung upon a tree. And that was a sign of the curse of God on your life that warned other people. With Jesus Christ, he wasn't even dead when they put him on the tree. The living Christ was hung upon a cross to take the curse of God that was meant for us. That's this picture that Paul is trying to paint. He's trying to say, look, you've got to understand this. It's Jesus Christ. He was cursed. He took the punishment. He took the pain. Everything that Adam had lost in the garden, it's the big picture I'm trying to paint today. Everything Adam had lost in the garden, Jesus, by choosing to obey in the garden, won back. This is where Paul is trying to take this argument. So John, John Piper, trying to get a quote on each one as well. There you go. For those that like the academic, the death of Christ is death to pride. That's our pride, but the dawn of hope. The death of Christ is death to our pride. There's nothing we can do. Oh, and we realize he died in our place. Me trying to keep as many rules as I can to become a Christian is never going to be enough. So let's quickly go on to the fifth character that I believe is in this, chapter three. And like I say, you could I, I read, I think it was six sermons that John Piper did on, you know, two verses. So I've gone quite big picture. I think the fifth person is the father. And I think, and I've done the father and a picture of a hand. Because I think Paul then almost lands this chapter, and it wasn't written in chapters, but we're just trying to work through this. Paul lands it by saying the heart of the Christian life is that we're all sons of God. Sons of God now. That's not something we've got to try and aim for. It's not something that we've got to try and obtain. You know, he's writing, remember, to this church that, that we're thinking, I've got to keep certain ceremonies, I've got to try and do certain things, I mustn't do certain things. Actually, what Paul is writing, is saying, no, actually, the Father has adopted you as his son right now. Now, I, 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 I'll be honest, I'm aware that people say, but I'm a lady, Pete, could, could you just stick daughter in there? No, you're a son. Oh, that's a bit controversial, isn't it? In those days, only sons could inherit, and I don't want to wipe you out of the inheritance. Yeah, If I'm called the bride of Christ, you're called the son of God. Let's just score that one on. Reality is that there was something here of saying, Anna, you're a son. That's not belittling who you are. It's because I want you to know that you have an inheritance in Christ that in those days was only ever given to sons. This is what God is saying, this is what Paul is saying, this is the picture. And so therefore he talks even about baptism being a public ceremony, a symbol of what has happened. I'm not going to go into all of that. The quote I've got on this one is William Barclay, it's not the force of man. He was a Puritan who wrote commentaries. It's not the force of man but the love of God alone which can unite a disunited world. I guess what I wanted to say about the Father is I think he makes understanding of the whole theme, the whole argument and this is where sometimes I think we sometimes get this whole law and grace thing wrong, the whole thing is actually, we're sons of the Father God, you know, it's almost like in in the garden Adam walked with God it's almost like the intimacy of a child with a father that's what we're brought back to like it's almost if you understand the, the whole Bible, it wasn't It wasn't like Bagatelle, you know, what happened to the story? Oh, golly, I'll bring Abraham, oh, that didn't work, I'll stick in. No, actually, there was always this big picture, the father saying, I'm pursuing a people because I want them to be my children. I think that we then connect to the promises of Abraham, we find our connection to eternity, we discover our place in history, and we realize our role in society, all because we understand that he's our father. Ultimately, if I could bring anything out of the wizard, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, it is this, that we are to be known as children, and he's our father. Paul was not on question time 2,000 years ago, trying to score a few political points. I don't think Galatians 3 was trying to say, I just want you to understand this. I could, you know. Actually, what he was saying is, I want you to understand that God is your father. God is your Father. I mean, that blows our minds, doesn't it? I mean, grace, it means I call God my Father. I can know that intimacy, that care, that concern, that love. I can't, I can't almost convey, and I just, you know, praying through this morning, thinking, if, I, if I want you to go away with anything from Galatians 3, it will be this throughout the whole of history, God has had this plan because he wants to bring children into a relationship with him. He's our father. It's not some big distant cosmic force that, oh, we've got to try and obey. Oh, grace means that even if I don't obey him, he'll forgive me, whoever he is. Why is he chasing all six billion of us anyway? No, actually what grace is, is I want to bring you into this relationship with God as your father. A father that loves We've talked so much, haven't we, about the parable the, the of the prodigal son this morning. Many of you know that parable, the prodigal son goes off, as he's called, blows his inheritance, comes back. The father is there and welcomes. The father makes sacrifice to embrace the son. We're also aware there's another character in the story, isn't there? The older brother. The older brother just complains, doesn't he? Whew. Not fair, is it? Never give me anything to have a party with. The elder son competes. The father sacrifices. When we understand something about God's father heart towards us, we don't feel the need to compete with one another because we're aware of his love for us. And the danger is too many of us are still religious and therefore we compete like the older brother. It's actually what God is saying. is, I want you to experience my love for you. I'm your father. Otherwise, if we think it's religion, we can look at somebody else and think they're not quite doing as well as I am. No, no, he's my father. I'm not I'm not called to be an older brother. I'm not here to compete. I'm not here to compare. He's my father. Don't you love this word that comes this morning from Nicky? The extravagance of the father. He's not running an orphanage. He's running a home. You know what I'm saying? He's welcoming us in. He's saying, I'm the father, I, I love you and I'm for you. Sam's saying, it. oh, as a father, you love your kids. I think that's what Paul's trying to take us to. He's trying to warn the church, don't get caught up in this, I do, I do, I do, I must do this. Because they were trying to say, Jesus plus something equals everything. And Paul was saying, no, no, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is only by Jesus we come to the Father. If you look right through the the Old Testament, the idea always was it was by faith in a promise, not by obeying a law. I know the band are going to lead us in a song. Why don't I pray? Father, we want to thank you so much. Father, thank you so much that we come to you our Father in heaven. We find that Absolutely amazing. You could have given us rules and made us jump hoops, but instead you came with a promise. A promise that we don't even get to. It's almost like, oh, we, wait, wait. no, no, you fulfill it. It's about you, your grace, your initiative, your love. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you we come to this extravagant Father in heaven. Lord, we, we say we love you because you first loved us. You've turned us all into sons of God. And we're thrilled by that. We know we're going to be breaking bread, delighting in the price that you paid to reunite us with you, our Father in heaven. I don't know if we're singing it now. We may sing it in a moment. I kept getting the song going round in my head this morning. He loves us. Do you know that one? Oh, how he loves us. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, he loves us. Uh, you know, and I just feel God will want to speak that over us right now. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Father, we don't want to come and follow false teaching. Oh, God, let Redeemer not be a church where people think, oh, I've got to do, I must do. Oh, we want to come and say he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, we thank you, Lord. It's not, it's not about us. It's all about you. I mean, that compels us to run towards you with our arms up high, held high. Oh, we want to run into our father's arms this morning, say so he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Thank you, Father.